biggest games. The biggest events. Wow, the crowd is on their feet. The biggest stories. This is what you signed up for, Seth. I thought it was just in the game. Welcome to the ESPN Esports Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Esports Podcast today. I'm Rachel, and I'm joined by Jacob on the phone. Jacob, how are you? Excited for our upcoming snowstorm tonight? Yeah, I'm doing all right. I mean, it's currently sprinkling. I'm in the car at the moment, so it's sprinkling a little bit, uh, but we'll see what actually happens this evening. I'm not as concerned as my southern relatives who don't know how to handle less than an inch of snow, um, and they're supposed to be getting the uh, bottom port out on them this evening, so more concerned about them. Right, yeah, I heard it It snowed in Austin today, which was crazy. But um, anyway, getting to our topic today, we have a special guest on our pod today. We have Kevin Chu from KSV Esports. KS, uh, Kevin's the CEO of KSV, who currently fields teams in Overwatch. You might know them as Soul Dynasty, formerly known as Lunatic High, and KSV is also in League of Legends, and they're the former Samsung Galaxy roster. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Of course, I've uh, wanted to. Kevin, get... I have to. I have to give you a little bit of flack. I'm sorry, Rachel. Kevin, I have okay. to give you just a little bit of flack. Um, so we we had this plan, um, and we're all ready to go. And then uh, what? I, I didn't even see like the company's sake, but the people who are handling PR on behalf of the Dynasty and KSV now been in my inbox like three times in the last two days. Like, please book Kevin Chow, and like he's available to talk at this time. And it's like. Uh, I already have him booked. <laughs> yeah, I got that email too. We're getting things straight in that. We, we, uh, one of the challenges of a global company is that we, 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 can't, we, we can't find a single PR agency that does all PR globally. So we've decided uh, just recently to move to two agencies. So we previously had a master agency in Korea that did some English, but frankly wasn't handling uh, the U.S. PR as well. Um, and so we just signed on a new PR agency in the U.S. to lead up efforts here. So I apologize for that. It's okay. You don't have to That's apologize. Okay. I, I, <laughs> I'm really just messing with you. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, it's very funny because um, when they sent the email, they sent me th- they sent me three as well. And at the end of the third one, they were they wrote, "If you're not interested in joining us for an interview, please let me know, and I will stop bothering you." Smiley face. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, let's get into it, Kevin. I've always wanted to ask you how you actually got into esports. Like, are you a gamer? Do you play Overwatch or League of Legends? Oh, absolutely. I've been a gamer my whole life. I started uh, uh, you know, gaming when I was, I don't know, six years old on the NES, you know, playing Legend of Zelda and, and Super Mario Brothers and that whole wave. Um, probably my, my beginning within competitive games was Street Fighter 2. And so I love going to the arcades and my, my Parents would kind of bring me to the local arcade. Uh, there'd be Street Fighter II tournaments. Like I say, I was doing, I kind of crushed the local competition in Moore Park, California. Um, and uh, so started playing, you know, some local, you know, arcade tournaments. Um, and then I probably have a little bit of a unique background within esports in that I ran a, a game developer and publisher for the last 10 years, a company called Kabam. So as a game developer and publisher, I've looked at, uh, creating esport games, uh, looking at the business models of esports uh, as from a game publisher standpoint, and so I've been thinking about that for the last three years. And then as Overwatch League got started, um, I decided to call up Nate Manzer and said, "Hey, what's going on with the whole franchising process? It's been quiet for a few months." Um, and, and he said, "Hey, let's 
let's talk about it. And uh, if you're interested, I'd love to you know, give you all the information and see if you'd like to get involved as a franchise owner. And um, so that led to buying Overwatch League, which started KSV. And prior to that, I, of course, played uh, League of Legends, um, kind of hovering sadly between you know, sort of around the lower gold levels and then Overwatch, kind of the same thing. Uh, so definitely a big player myself, although not nearly as competitive as I used to be back in the arcade Street Fighter 2 days. Oh, nice. I'm gold as well, actually, in both in both games. Not very good, but, you know, getting there. The most intriguing thing about Kevin, um, there's so a couple things. I've told Kevin this prior. Uh, we got dinner a couple months ago. And um, so two things. So first, Kevin is one of the first people or one of the few people I know in the Overwatch League that actually did the opposite effect. So the, the kind of the Overwatch League was all about recruitment of sports owners and existing esports teams and the big BlizzCon party that happened in 2016. And it was very much like almost like a college recruiting process of getting in front of people and convincing them to buy. Except Kevin did the opposite. Kevin uh, ended up approaching Blizzard. And uh, Kevin, could you kind of tell us a little bit more about what, what interests you so much in the Overwatch League versus some of the other things in esports? I... I absolutely think that the franchise model and also creating a global esports league is the it's the penultimate goal, I think, of where esports is moving towards. And the fact that Blizzard uh, kind of got there, uh, and I was independently thinking about that, it just kind of made so much sense. So when I when I called them up, I wasn't really expecting to be that interested. Actually, I was just interested in learning more about what was happening. And when they started to give me the pitch in terms of here's how we're planning to, you know, run the league. It's going to be a team per city. You know, it's going to be the biggest city in the world. It's not going to be a regional competition where you sort of face off and play the entire season at NA and then there's one world's championships and, and, you know, a year where all the best teams in the world get together. I felt, I've always felt like that model, um, there's a lot, there's a lot of reasons why that model works, but I've always wanted to see a model, uh, exactly like what Overwatch League is doing, where it's kind of uh, a city-based franchise and a global competition throughout the entire season. And so I think when those two things uh, uh, kind of came together into a single Overwatch League, I said, this is, this is something i got to jump on. Right, and that brings me into my next point. When I actually first saw the KSV Esports website, the tagline, I think at the time and currently, is still is a collaboration between Silicon Valley and Seoul. So there is this um, this message of globalization, and there seems to be a big focus on bringing Korean esports to a Western audience. What was your initial impression of the Korean market when you first uh, dove into, I guess, your market research? So... One story I've, I failed to mention was that in the very early days of StarCraft, I, uh, I I went to the store and I waited in line to go buy StarCraft when it first came out. This was back in like, 1997, if I got the year right. Um, and and I was a top 100 player. You know, so when they had they had an in-game leaderboard and 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 the ranking like a very basic Elo system, and I was a, a top 100 player. So I've been a huge Blizzard fan for you know a long time. So I was a top 100 player in, uh, in, in StarCraft for, I don't know, all of 30 days or something like that. And then the Koreans started to show up in uh, StarCraft, and they basically just absolutely smoked everyone else uh, in StarCraft. And, of course, as we know, going back in history, that they just dominated the entire professional scene around StarCraft. And so that was kind of my first exposure to 
Korean esports was playing against these Koreans that were just absolutely amazing in terms of their mechanical skill and the strategy of which they were executing in these games. And um, and then more recently, you know, uh, when I was running Kabam, I was spending a lot of time in Korea because we had partnered with a company called Netmarble to publish some of their games that were successful in the Korean market in, into the Western markets. We ultimately ended up selling our company, Kabam, to Netmarble. So I spent a lot of time in Seoul, um, and uh, it can't help but sort of you know, pay attention to the esports scene out there where it's one of the, it was one of the few markets where there were regular games that were broadcast as well as uh, in-game or live tournaments being held all week long. And so I, I went to a couple of the games. I was just blown away by the passion and the energy level that was in the crowd. And um, so I've been paying attention to Korean esports for quite a while. And when there was an opportunity to think, hey, how do I take all of this greatness of what's happening in Korea and bring it to a global stage? Well, that only makes sense if there's a global competition like Overwatch League. And, and so that was one of the things that, uh, kind of put two and two together and decided to you know, buy the sole franchise for Overwatch League and, um, and make that uh, put all this together into a, a take the best of what happened in Korea in terms of the players, the coaching, the training regiments, but put a global sales, a global marketing, global infrastructure around this team to help them compete all around the world. Interestingly enough, if I'm correct, you originally wanted to buy the San Francisco market too, right? Before that was sold to Energy. What, what was your desire in that that market? That's a convenience factor. So I live in San Francisco, and uh, of course, you know, having starting a company in San Francisco, an esports company in San Francisco, would have been a lot easier from a professional, personal lifestyle balance standpoint, as opposed to traveling to. Korea. Um, yeah, Kabam was a pretty global office, we, global company. We had offices in Seoul, uh, Beijing, Vancouver, Los Angeles, Berlin. And so running a global company, you're up 24-7 because there's always somebody working. There's always you know partners and, and other things that are happening. So I've, I've ran a global company before, and there was a part of me that said, ah, San Francisco would be really nice because it would be just very convenient um, to, to start an esports company in the hometown that I live in. Right, and I um I actually wanted to ask you, do you have headquarters in Seoul as well, since most of the teams that you've gone are based in Seoul? Our headquarters is in Seoul. So there's only uh, three people in our San Francisco office, and then our all of our you know our finance function, legal function, um, you know, all of the headquarter functions are actually in Seoul. Right. And um, were there any concerns before you decided to take the plunge and join the Overwatch League? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, I think all the owners, uh, are say, I myself was looking at a lot of the, the viewership numbers around Overwatch on Twitch, um, you know, for both what was happening in Apex, but also uh, just in terms of individual streamers and kind of the, the audience that uh, they were getting on Twitch. Um, there's certainly the, always the kind of fear that another championship gaming series uh, would, you know, um, uh, you know, that this could be a next, next championship gaming series, uh, which back in 2008 ended up folding. Very ambitious uh, project. Uh, so that's, that's kind of on, on my mind, and certainly as I looked at Overwatch League. But ultimately, I think um, the, the bet that we, I made as a team owner was that, number one, Blizzard 
is uh, Blizzard, and they're kind of the gold standard in game developers and publishers. And and I knew how fast Overwatch had grown in the marketplace, and I knew some of the numbers in terms of the engagement. Um, and so I knew that this game was going to be this game. There was something underlying that was very special, even though the the viewership numbers weren't as high in the you know in the summer, which we were evaluating buying into the league. Um, so in that plus the the price of entry into the league, you know, that certainly gave. Uh, myself as well as my co-owners, you know, some pause in terms of buying into the league. But ultimately, I think we got to a point as we dug in, did our diligence, we got excited enough about the vision, about the team that they were putting in place to execute Overwatch League, um, and and obviously the uh, continued growth in <clears throat> in sales of the game on a worldwide basis um, made us excited enough to pull the trigger. So a question I have for you, um, I I think that you're kind of like the unicorn of the team owners in the Overwatch League in the sense that uh, they very much skew either traditional sports owners or esports existing owners. Um, you are neither of those, or you were neither of those when you first acquired. But what do you think your experience, whether it be Kabam or other ventures that you've been involved in, what do you think your experience provides that you can leverage to make this whole dynasty better, bigger, whatever your goals are? That's a great question. I think, I think there's there's two factors. The first factor is a very global perspective, and so um, because Kabam was such a global company, and we only did about thirty, forty percent of our revenue, depending on the game, uh, was was coming from the U.S. We were we had set up offices all over the world, and so uh, operating internationally, having um, people in offices all over the world and trying to get them to get coordinated and get onto the same page, it's very, very difficult to run um, a company, no matter how much resources the company has in terms of getting all the global aspects of the company coordinated. Um, so I think, it, and you know, being a Chinese-American, uh, having spent, having done a lot of business in Korea, done a lot of business in China, with both Alibaba and Tencent being involved in Kabam uh, as investors and, and board partners. Uh, board members, um, well, Alibaba as a board member, it was a very, I think, a global perspective in terms of esports is pretty unique in terms of how I bring that. And so, uh, just like Rachel mentioned earlier, from the very beginning, we were creating KSV as a global esports company, not a regional esports company. And so that has a lot of significance in terms of the way that we do our marketing, the way that we do our sales, and then the way that we think about uh, the management team and leadership team of the company that we're putting together. And the second is, I think, having a perspective as a game publisher is also really important for me. I think it's a unique advantage. Uh, certainly the relationships of having you know, been in the, the gaming industry and, and knowing all of the, the you know, key executives at, all, at a lot of uh, big gaming publishers, uh, that's certainly very helpful in terms of uh, you're getting onto the same page as them. But even more importantly, it's understanding how to, what drives their business? Why are they getting, why are they spending all of this money and energy and resources into creating a league around their game? Why are they doing that? What's the, what's driving their business? I've kind of sat in that seat before. And so I know, okay, here's the things that I could do as a team owner to help make sure it's a win-win proposition for us as well as the league or the game publisher. And that's, that's been, I think, a unique perspective in terms of how I'm able to talk to 
some of these game publishers as they're considering setting up their league. It certainly was one of the key selling points as I uh, talked to Blizzard about uh, being able to pull off as an American uh, owning uh, and operating the sole franchise for Overwatch League. Right, and I have to ask, like, what is your metrics for success? Opening day served up over 400,000 concurrent viewers, so did that meet your goals and expectations for the league? Yes. So I think, uh, you know, my, I was thinking that it'd be very, we'd have a very successful opening if it was 200,000. Uh, and then by the time you know, the countdown clock started on Twitch, I think there was already 250,000, you know, waiting for the first <laughs> game to start. Uh, and that number just kept growing uh, throughout the, the first days. So very, very excited about those numbers. And then when you add up, actually, um, the other platforms in China, I think that number goes well above a million. Um, and, uh, the, you know, the China number is always a little bit suspect. But, you know, for a new game, new league like Overwatch League, you know, I think the numbers are maybe a little bit more clean. But uh, really excited about the, the, the viewership for Overwatch. And um, I think we're off to a great start. So I have a question for you as well, and you, you actually are uh, obviously pretty poised as someone who founded Kabam and saw that through um, to kind of answer this question. So uh, we've seen esports teams complain across the globe um, or privately complain across the globe in some cases about lack of profits. Uh, we've seen that actually bar them from being in certain franchise leagues like the LCS because they aren't able to make money and they don't really have a good plan to make money. With all the acquisitions you've made, what is your kind of – can you walk us through what your path is to, to eventually making KSV a profitable company and, and it kind of paying for itself rather than being an investment? That's a great question. And <laughs> <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, everything that is new is going to carry risk. There's just no such thing as a riskless venture. Um, and so I think when I look at esports, I see a lot of what I saw in the gaming industry back when I started Kabam, which is right now, there's a ton of eyeballs. I think everyone knows that there's a lot of people tuning in. There's a lot of people engaging uh, on social media, on, you know, on YouTube, on Twitch, on all these different places around the Internet with esports content. Um, and people are going to, and more recently, in the last three to four years, with Worlds, with a few other you know, major championships, IEM and so forth, you see hundreds, you know, tens of thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands of people you know, fly to a certain location uh, to go watch these games uh, live, uh, you know, much like you know, traditional sports. And so I think all of those things are kind of in place in terms of big eyeballs. But as you said, Jacob, it's, it's, there's no monetization. This is exactly the same problem that happened in gaming, you know, 10 years ago when Facebook games and then smartphone games uh, were first brought to the market was that you had all these people playing these games and nobody was making any money, couldn't figure out the, the revenue model. So I think there's still a lot of that core entrepreneurship and innovation that needs to happen in terms of how esports teams run themselves to <clears throat> build a sustainable business. Uh, but I love the fact that there's a lot of people engaged, incredibly passionate about uh, esports. And I think uh, it's, it's our job as team owners to figure out how do we build sustainable businesses off of this. And I think there's already examples of that. So while, yes, there's a lot of uh, team owners that um, – have been in the news, you know, struggling from a financial perspective. There are there are several esports teams that are profitable, and uh, and so there's something there. And we I've certainly been been thinking about that quite a bit. Um, so the core business model of kind of 
know, streaming deals plus sponsorship deals plus tournament winnings has been kind of the, you know, what's, what's kept esports teams afloat. But I think we're missing like a whole, we're missing two big factors. One factor is the, the kind of major media deals. And so part of what makes traditional sports so successful from a business perspective is the kind of league negotiating these, uh, these deals with the media companies and then that broadcast, those broadcast dollars get uh, uh, spread to the teams to reinvest in, in the sport. So that hasn't really happened in esports yet. And with Riot's deal, as well as Overwatch League's deal with Twitch, you know, these, these things are starting to, to fall in place. Uh, so that's going to be one big factor that <clears throat> will turn, um, I think, the whole industry around a little bit or kind of change the model. And then the next element is some, some level of kind of fan support. So match day revenues for Manchester United, you look at match day revenues for almost any other professional sport, it's a significant portion of their overall revenue base. And that hasn't really existed for uh, eSport teams. So what is the model for having the fans support the business uh, as an actual customer as opposed to just the viewer? That, that is a big question within eSports that I think all the team owners are, are kind of scratching their heads and kind of thinking about. And I think there's a lot of in, interesting innovation that team owners are trying, and you're going to see us as KSV try you know, a few different things there to provide unique value to our fans um, and, and hopefully build a sustainable business off of that. Well said. Uh, I think we're looking forward to seeing how KSV does in 2018. More on that in a second. Everyone, we're going to take a short break right now, but when we come back, we're going to talk more about KSV's League of Legends team. As a side note, you can also leave us a rating and a review in iTunes and let us know how we're doing. And if you're on Twitter, make sure to tweet us your thoughts at Rachel Yonggu, at Jacob and Wolf, and Kevin's Twitter is at Kevin Chu, so be sure to give him a follow and let him know how he's doing. And we're back with the ESPN Esports podcast. We left off at Overwatch, so let's move on to Kevin's League of Legends team, KSV, or formerly known as Samsung Galaxy. I know a couple months back there were plans to rename and rebrand the team, so what happened with that, Kevin? Well, we're one of the one of the things that we're working on as a, a team that's trying to up the professionalism within esports is that we're actually trying to file for trademarks, and so. We are, and we're not just trying to file for trademarks in Korea. We're obviously looking at the USA. We're looking at China. We're looking at the EU. And so, actually, I thought that you know, since esports is relatively new, not that many esports teams have you know filed for trademarks, that it'd be you know relatively easy to to go through a naming process and just come up with the best creative names, and then it should be easy navigating the trademarks. What I'll say is that the trademarks are a lot more complicated because even though we're in esports. From the at least the advice from our lawyers is that when you're filing for a trademark and you're filing it within esports, the relevant category is actually all of gaming. And so when you look at all of gaming and all the game publishers that are there all over the world, there's a lot of names that uh, game publishers have filed for that either tries to protect obviously the IP of their game, the characters within the game. So there's actually a lot of protected IP out there around you know, gaming that actually makes it a little bit difficult to get um, a trademark for an esports team. And so we're kind of navigating that. And so we, we did have a setback with, we had a name that we were in love with. Uh, we think that there's significant trademark risks in certain markets that are key for us. So we're kind of going back to the drawing board. And well, we went back to the drawing board about a month ago. And, um, and uh, we're still 
still working on that name. All right. What was the name? Can you tell us? <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a small chance that we'll still be able to get that we'll we can figure out some of the the issues, but. Uh, uh, so when that when when we finally give up on it, I'll be happy to in a future podcast to talk about what the name was that we were settling on once we actually get the the name finally figured out. <laughs> so can you? So give I have us another some... question for you. Oh, too. go ahead, Jacob. Um, yeah. So my other question for you was uh, the market. So uh, this is a discussion we've been having around our office for the last couple of weeks about how these teams are building fan bases in markets that are not actually playing with as it pertains to Overwatch League. I got the chance to go out to Boston last week and kind of see the Uprising viewing party, which definitely exceeded my expectations. Saw the Outlaws one had like 608 people. Um, and, you know, the going away party for your guys um, before they joined this old dynasty and moved away was huge. Um, and I personally think that Seoul is the best short-term market because they're so it's, I feel like esports is almost more culturally acceptable there than it is in the U.S. and has a higher awareness uh, per capita versus the awareness it has per capita in the U.S. Um, but what is it like trying to do marketing efforts with a team that doesn't actually exist in that landscape right now? Well, Seoul Dynasty isn't physically located in Seoul, but we have several other teams like our League of Legends team, our Heroes of the Storm team. Our Battlegrounds team is, is based in Seoul. So we're still able to do things in Seoul around our players and teams, but, but not around Seoul Dynasty, as you, as you said. We are looking at things like viewing parties, um, but because of the, the time zone difference, the viewing party, instead of being at you know, 6 p.m., would be 10 a.m. <laughs> and so you know, get, you know, most bars aren't open at 10 a.m. for to, to have a viewing party. Um, so it, there's a little bit of a time zone challenge, so we're kind of thinking through that. So there are some very unique challenges, but also opportunities um, and strengths that you mentioned, Jacob. I think the, the strengths that you mentioned about being based in Seoul is absolutely true. But on the flip side, because esports is more established and we're trying to do it differently, there, we have to actually take what's already accepted and say, oh, no, actually, we're going to do a bunch of things differently. And so, you know, fans can always some fans really like that in terms of, hey, you know, this team is trying things that are new. This team is trying to really build a, 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 a tighter relationship with its fans and sort of get more behind the scenes, which is a lot of what we're trying to do. But on the flip side, for example, when we held our fan event, you know, the idea of paying for a ticket to a fan event is actually a, a big challenge in Korea. So you know, a lot of fan events uh, that are held in Korea um, are free to fans to go. And it's just booked as a pure marketing expense, you know, for the company. And if that company is Samsung or SK Telecom or KT, that's fine. You've got this big, huge conglomerate that's, you know, the, the esports division is all about driving awareness and uh, giving back to the community. But it's not about building a business within esports. And so uh, we're fighting with some of the established business models and kind of pricing perceptions that fans have in Korea of what esports is. Uh, but at the same time, there's, there's, there's a lot of people who are really excited about esports in Korea. So it's a, it's, it's a give and take. Right. And I actually feel like um, that's one of the failings that Samsung had back when, back in 2017, before it was acquired by KSV, was that it really did fail to market its team in the right way. And I, w I really want to know, like, what are KSV's plans to, what are KSV's plans for this lineup in 2018? Like, how will you differentiate yourself from 2017 Samsung? Well, I'll say that, uh, you know, 
one of my core philosophies as an owner is about interacting with the fans a lot more. So yes, we're going to have, you know, it's Twitter accounts. We we're actually on discord and we're pretty active on discord for you know, our soul dynasty. We're evaluating that for KSV league of legends. Um, so you're going to see us do a lot more in terms of interactions with the fans, um, both from kind of the staff members at KSV um, the community managers that we're bringing on board, as well as from the players and coaches. You're going to see us do a lot more in terms of, uh, obviously, events where we can actually have person-to-person or direct interaction uh, in person with the fans and the players and the coaches. Um, so we, we expect to bring that model to League of Legends. We're already doing it for Soul Dynasty, which is where we first started. And you'll see us bring that to all of our teams um, that we run, and uh, we're really excited about that. The other thing that you're going to see us is we're going to bring you know, some really interesting sponsor partners um, to, to the picture. And now when I say sponsor partners, you might think, oh, it's just a logo slap. But we are actually doing things with our sponsors that, that with a unified vision. So, for example, one of the things that we're, uh, I've always wanted to do within esports was help the players think about their financial future as well as think about their career future um, and also think about their physical future. And so... Uh, so I actually posted on my Twitter today about uh, our Soul Dynasty team. We've actually brought in a physical trainer who is going, who's specially uh, focused on um, people who sit in front of computers and do a lot of work on computers. Uh, so she's built a whole practice around this. And so she's, she's, been treating, she's been working with our team on how do you keep yourself in top physical conditions so that you're not getting you know, wrist injuries or neck or shoulder injuries. How do you do, how do you think about you know, ergonomics, how do you think about exercises to help your, uh, your, your physical, you know, thinking. And from a financial perspective, we're going to be, uh, we're kind of putting the very final touches on a really interesting financial partnership that's going to be, yes, a sponsor, but they're also going to be working with us. Uh, it's a great name within the financial space, uh, working with our players on helping them plan for their financial future. So our League of Legends team won the world championship last year. And, as usual, you know, the players keep the, the vast majority of the prize money. The team actually generally sees very little of it. And, um, but what we, we want to do is help the players like, think, wow, you just got this big sum of money that you worked really hard for for many years to win this tournament. You know, obviously, these players want to you know, treat themselves, and that's fantastic. They wanna, a lot of our players give money back to their families, which is awesome. But they still have all this money. How do you think about your financial future for someday when you're not making uh, all this money anymore, how do you think about that future and plan for it? So we're going to bring partners in like that to work with our players as well. So those are some of the things that we're doing that uh, is, is pretty different, I think, in, in esports, certainly in Korea, but also, you know, maybe in other parts of the world too. So my next question for you is um, I fully expect uh, the so we see that the NALCS and the LPL have moved to a franchising model. We know that EU LCS is moving to a franchising model later this year. Fully expect to see the LCK be a part of that, so revenue sharing can be a bigger thing. We've seen Riot take over the LCK broadcast more, which obviously leads me to believe that that will be a part of the BamTech deal that they have to be able to broadcast the LCK in that BamTech app and on their site. Um, what would you like to see in a world where Riot Games franchises the LCK? Like, what 
what do you think is an acceptable buy-in number? What kind of uh, splits would you like to see? Because I don't think it can necessarily be one-to-one to the the NALCS or the LPL. I think it's really early to comment on that. I think <laughs> we, we I'll, I'll tell you that you know we we've been in close dialogue with Riot, and their focus has been so much on getting NA uh, and China and the LPL ready and then shifting their attention to EU. They obviously announced that they were trying something with the EU, and then some other things happened, and then now they're reworking some of those plans. I think, um, and and we've been in close contact with them, and they said, hey, listen, you know, LCK, we're obviously not going to ignore it. Korea is really important, but frankly, it's going to be, you know, after EU. And so we're comfortable with that. I think, uh, you know, we're looking to, uh, when we look at legal rent, League of Legends, you know, we're really excited about the future of League of Legends, and we're uh, kind of, you know, our my job right now is to show that we can run a great world-class um, LCK team, a League of Legends team that hopefully competes on, uh, you know, at Worlds and MSIs and so forth, um, but, uh, and, and build up the, you know, build up our fan base, build up our capabilities in terms of the marketing and content production that we're working on, and then we'll just continue to work with Riot, um, but my perspective right now is that they're really focused on getting the first season of NALCS working really well with the new owners, and they're working on EU franchising. And they haven't um, they haven't turned their attention to Korea yet. I want to touch on PUBG for a quick moment, since we mentioned that earlier in our conversation. You know, we talk about certain games being flavor of the month, but PUBG has really taken gaming and Twitch by storm. And I know Eska, who used to play for Soul Dynasty, is heading up the KSV squad. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about what to expect in the coming year from KSV, PUBG? We're very excited about PUBG. It's a, it's a huge game in Korea because it's, uh, it's where the publisher, the developer is from. It's absolutely mind-boggling in China. I was watching a stream of uh, Battlegrounds yesterday, and uh, it was a female player, and she has 3 million people watching her. Three million concurrent at the moment that I was watching. Unbelievable in terms of how popular that game is in China, you know, right now. And I don't know how many copies they've sold in China. I don't think it's three million, or maybe it is three million. I don't know. Uh, but to have three million people watching one, ch- you know, one channel in China, it was just unbelievable. Um, so the popularity of that game, I think, is uh, so. So coming from the game industry, what I look for is not units sold. Because, yeah, anybody can kind of, especially the big publishers, can put a lot of marketing muscle behind a game and get a lot of units sold, you know, relatively quickly. The most interesting thing about PUBG is that because it's on Steam, you can see the concurrent, the peak concurrent players. You can see all the concurrents. Um, But to have that number continue to climb over the last 12 months since that game's launched, I guess a little bit less than 12 months. Uh, it's just been phenomenal. And so what that tells me as a, as a former publisher myself is that game is incredibly sticky. Because it doesn't matter how many units you sell if your game's not sticky. You're not going to have that many uh, concurrent players playing your game. It, when you see the peak concurrent rise exponentially as fast as PUBG has risen over the last uh, 10 months or so, it's just been, it, it just means that game is incredibly sticky. So my view, you know, again, coming from game publishing business is that this game is going to be around for a very long time. The biggest challenge I think for PUBG is that it's run by a really small developer. And so that, that developer prior to launching PUBG was less than a hundred employees. And so to run a game, even just the pure development of that game at the scale that PUBG is, is, is at right now, 
it just requires a lot of resources to, you know, get the performance levels right, to get the latency issues, to you know, create new content. It, you know, just it, it's challenging for a small developer, much less actually getting into esports and creating the league, you know, the league structures to, you know, work with tournament organizers, to work with the teams and the players. You know, all that is is uh, is also kind of coming <clears throat> into play right now as well. So I think the the biggest challenge from my perspective is 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 Blue Hole ready to support this game as an esport game? They talk they talk about it quite a bit, you know, publicly as being in, uh, in esport, and that's where they they want to go. They're also you know very honest and and I think humble about hey, we're a small company, we're still you know we're we're still trying to get the game out, right? The game wasn't even formally launched yet um, until end of last year. So I think uh, I think it's going to turn into a fantastic esport. Uh, certainly from a spectator perspective, watching an individual play, it's incredibly entertaining. I think there's a lot of questions around you know, squad-based play in terms of how many people will tune in for a truly competitive squad-based game. Um, you know, so, so IEM Oakland, you know, for example, and looking at the numbers around that, yeah, there's still a lot of work, right? And also the production levels in terms of running these tournaments and how do you have you know, 80 or 100 players you know, in the same physical location and how does the spectator, you know, how do people follow the game? Um, there's, there's a lot of questions, but these are actually, frankly, the same questions that plagued Overwatch in its first year before Overwatch League came into play. So I think, um, you know, my perspective is I'm patient. I love getting into games, you know, relatively early, establishing a very strong team, getting to know how the players and the ecosystem of coaches is working, um, and so my, my perspective, as with everything in esports, is that you have to have a little bit of patience. You have to be willing to invest for the long term um, and make sure that you run your business appropriately so that you're around in the long term when these things uh, kind of come to fruition. Absolutely. I'm, I'm looking forward to see how that develops. We're running out of time right now, but Kevin, are there any last comments you want to make to any fans out there? We're, we're a new company. And uh, I know there's always a lot of questions about that, but uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, interacting with the fans personally, as well as getting our players to do a lot more. Um, and so please join us on, you know, you'll see us on Twitter very actively, on Facebook, on um, Instagram, on Discord now. Um, it's actually been really great to interact with the fan community and see all the passion and all of the incredible knowledge that our fans have. So so I'm making myself personally available on a lot of different, uh, you know, mediums for fans to uh, interact with and answer questions and, and talk about what I can, uh, but also getting our players and coaches onto, you know, these channels where they also, you know, certain players really love interacting with their fans and some other players are really shy. And so we're kind of, we're trying to figure out, you know, how, how do we get more and more of our players to do more? And I think we're making a lot of progress. So hopefully, uh, we get to interact with all of our fans in some way and look forward to an incredible Overwatch League season, League of Legends season, Heroes of the Storm season, and PUBG season with everyone. Nice. And if you guys want to find um, the Discord link for KSV slash Soul Dynasty, you can find it on Kevin's Twitter at Kevin Chu. That's all the time we have for the podcast today. Thank you, Kevin, for joining us and giving us your insight. For more esports content, you can check out ESPN.com slash esports. Or you can follow us on Twitter at Rachel Younggu and at Jacob and Wolf. See you guys next week. Thanks for listening to the ESPN Esports Podcast.